Many people work really hard to bring together criminology theory and criminal justice practice. Today's guest is an expert in both. As a leader in prison management, including challenging that same management system, and as the editor of a successful journal, today's episode is all about real-world impact in prisons. My name is Omar Phoenix-Khan, and this is Justice for Life. Dr. Jamie Bennett began his career in prisons in 1996 and currently works as the Deputy Director of the Operational Security Group for Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service. Jamie has a huge wealth of experience in senior management positions across a range of specialised prison settings. These include as Governor of HMP Long Larton, which is a high security prison, Governor of HMP Grendon, the only prison across England and Wales to operate entirely as a series of therapeutic communities, HMP Spring Hill, an innovative Open Prison, which helps men to prepare for their release and resettle into community, and HMP Morton Hall, a women's prison working with a diverse and international population, but also many other establishments as well. Jamie is also a research associate at Oxford University's Centre for Criminology and editor of the Prison Service Journal. He's published over 100 articles and reviews covering topics including prisons and the media, social inequality and imprisonment, and the development of managerialism. Many of these topics we'll be talking about today. So, Dr. Jamie Bennett, welcome to Justice Focus. Thank you very much. Great, thanks. And yes, great to speak with you. I hope you're well. Have the logistics of your working life been thrown out the window recently by the pandemic? So I've spent most of the time in London. So in the uh, Gold Command Suite in Prison Service Headquarters. So... Mm. Uh, essentially, the prison has been operating not in its normal management mode, but in essentially command mode. So to to ensure that we respond effectively to the COVID emergency. Um, so we we separate the command structure into gold, silver and bronze, mm-hmm. bronze being prison level, silver being regional level and gold being national level. So so basically, I've spent most of the time um working in London uh, as part of the Gold Command response. Great, yeah, thanks. And I, I want to ask you about your specific uh, experience as a, as a prison governor, but obviously now you're working as, a, as this Deputy Director of Operational Security. So could you tell people that may not really understand what operations is and um, there's just a little bit about your role at the moment and how that's different to managing a specific prison? Yes, yes. So, so, so I have a national role leading on the operational aspects of security. So the three main parts to that. One is um, operational risk and resilience. So essentially this is uh, how we respond to serious incidents, mm. um, our use of force policy, our specialist teams who respond to complex issues around the use of force. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. The second aspect is... Uh, security countermeasures so this is our security policies and practices and the development of new technology to respond to security threats and the third area is called security risk unit uh, which is about identifying current and future risks so it's uh, systematically identifying security risks in prison Mm. uh, and uh, also horizon scanning for what's emerging 
the other element of that is about capability development. So, for example, trying to develop security managers and professionalise and improve what we do. Um, so, so that's it covers quite a broad range, but mm. essentially it's a, a kind of one of the professional leads for security policy and practice for prisons of probation and youth custody. Yeah, yeah, sounds sounds really interesting. And and in in the normal case of affairs, when there isn't a global pandemic, does that mean you're still in and out of prisons as well, or is it more that you're meeting on the strategic level with with other managers? Yeah, so it's it is more on a strategic level. Um, so uh, I um, I rather than going into prisons, um, you know, we have teams who do that. Who have a direct interface in prison so a lot of my uh, inter- interface with people working directly in prisons will be for example through um, some of the training and development and professionalization work we do mm. uh, and also when in command mode responding to incidents um, you know I might be involved in that as well so mm. uh, so yeah it's, it's kind of very different um, mm. you know rather than what I'm used to which is the kind of day-to-day uh, walking around, engaging with staff yeah. and prisoners. So it's yeah, it's a very different role for me. And has it been a, sort of a welcome change after doing that for so long, or do you miss prison? <laughs> Which might sound like a funny question. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it, it, yes, absolutely. It's a, it's such a, a significant change, yeah. uh, and it was such a big part of my life um, working directly in prisons that that it is uh, it is a bit of a wrench to change mm. but um i did feel it was like time to start developing in a in a different direction so it's a new challenge for me and it's it's what i liked about it was um you know it, it, having worked directly governing prisons for you know, over 20 years it, it was something that i had developed my craft so um i, I knew what I was about as a prison prison manager hmm. uh, and how I wanted to carry out my work and, and what I brought to it. Um, and I'm suddenly thrust into a world where really I don't understand the world. I don't know about it. I, uh, I don't, don't, I sometimes don't feel equipped for it. So I'm kind of, it's quite nice to go into a situation of great un- unfamiliarity and hmm. uncertainty. Um, some of the greatest learning experiences are when you feel the most uncomfortable so I think I think it has been a good opportunity in that regard to develop myself professionally yeah. uh, and to to find new challenges. Yeah. Oh, great. And and thinking about this the professional journey that you've just been talking about, I know that you originally your degree was in law. So was it always the plan to then move into prison prison governance, prison management somehow? So my journey uh, really starts from... So my background is that I was brought up by a teenage single mother in a council estate and uh, no one in my family had ever been to university. Didn't suppose I really knew what university was. Mm. Um, but quite early on, I, kinda, I think I realised that education was going to be a route for me to uh, change my life circumstances. Yeah. And... Um, and I was very much encouraged in that by my by my uh, mother. And um, when I was about eleven or twelve, I remember a teacher I think was trying to motivate us and went around the classroom and everyone had to say what they wanted to do when they grew up. And the the girl I liked said she wanted to be a lawyer, so I said I did too. <laughs> and um, and all. 
although she disappeared out of my life, you know, it was kind of this idea yeah. stuck with me. And I suppose it stuck with me for two reasons. One was coming from the background that I wanted. I, I wanted to, you know, it seemed important to me that I was going to study something not for the sake of it, but because it would get a job. There was that seemed to be uh, something that was important. Mm. And the but the other thing was that I thought law was something to do with right and wrong. I thought there was a moral dimension to it. Uh, and so I, I ended up going to university and studying law. Uh, it was at Cambridge. And I think very quickly I realised it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It, right. it, it was pretty much a production line for commercial lawyers. Uh, and that was certainly not what I wanted to be. Uh, and so in the second year, uh, one of the options was to study prisons. Uh, and so I took that option and um, was, became quite interested in this. And then the third year, I did a dissertation on women's imprisonment. And what I was discovering in that was what I was looking for, which is something which was a battle of ideas and values. Um, it's a very much a contested moral world as mm. prisons. Mm. And um, it's that sort of street level politics, really, that I was really interested in. Uh, and so it kind of captured my imagination. Um, I certainly wasn't only under any illusions that prisons were the answer to society's problems. In, in many ways, they were a reflection of society's problems. Mm. But it did seem to me that there were people working in the prison system who were trying to wrestle with this, um, and that was something that I was interested in doing. So I, when I left university, I applied for the prison services fast track scheme and joined, joined pretty much straight from university. Mm. Well, I wonder if, uh, if if that girl back in the day had been interested in politics, maybe you'd be prime minister by now. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose I was fortunate she was interested in <laughs> something like that rather than, you know, a million other jobs yeah. it could have been. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's interesting how, like, a small spark can then, you know, influence a, a whole direction. But then obviously, yeah, there's there's so much more to, um, you know, it's interesting you're talking about the idea of right and wrong, and I think that's that's something that's a very core belief in, in a lot of people that then will motivate them it's yes yeah, interesting that that's no absolutely it's just a it's a it's a messy business working in prisons you know and I really struggle with this all of the time um that on the one hand prisons are harmful um and they reflect many of the social problems in society so all of the inequalities that exist in society are then not just replicated but amplified in mm. prisons. Yeah. Uh, and so on one hand, I feel deeply compromised by that, that I'm part of a system which, uh, which is responsible and perpetuates that kind of inequality. But at the same time, I'm trying to wrestle with it mm. uh, and trying to, uh, in a direct way, connect with people in order to affect some kind of change and wrestle with the organisation mm. and to kind of also through academic work and other kind of public engagement to try and bring a different voice to the debate about uh, prisons and society. So, you know, I, I'm in this sort of strange position where I'm, uh, you know, I'm very much cited on the moral ambiguity of what I do mm. uh, and constantly feel 
discomfort about that, but I, I, I hope it's a kind of productive discomfort. Yeah, well, it's. I think um, I think it speaks to a lot of people's uncomfortableness with it, and I think it's it's interesting how there's people working passionately at all sort of levels of it. There's people that will refuse to work for the prison service because they may be abolitionist and disagree with it completely, and there's people that work passionately within it, and then there's this sort of middle ground where you kind of have to be a critical friend in some kind of way to to want to to work within it to to change and. Yeah, I think it's. I find it really interesting to read other people who, you know, aren't, don't want to just give up on everything, but want to question every aspect to it. And I, yeah, I find that really interesting in your work. And um, you know, obviously, I don't see your work when you're working as a governor, but I I read yeah. your academic work, and so you know, you've mentioned it a little bit yourself. And uh, how has it been to have one foot in academia and one foot in the real world of prisons? And um, when did did you did you always have one foot in each, or is that something that's developed later on? So I, I've always been interested in academic work. So um, you know, as I said, uh, education was an important part of my biography, and mm. I, I was interested in continuing that. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, and in some ways, my academic interest also reflects some of the wrong turns that I took. So when I first joined the prison service, I joined at an age at which the prison service, along with other public services, were more intensively engaging with this idea of managerialism, mm. the um, targets and audits, uh, and these ways of attempting to improve public services through through surveillance and monitoring. Uh, and um, so I was part of really a generation that were at the vanguard of that and introducing that Mm. and um, part of the growth of it. And in my early career, I was involved in setting up the first um, league table of prisons. So it was called the weighted scorecard. And I was uh, very much involved in that. And so I was basically a a sort of young managerialist. And I I remember when I was... um, I had a moment which uh, just called me up about what I was doing and who I was becoming. And that was, I was deputy governor of a prison and um, it had been sort of languishing mid-table on this league table. And so one of my tasks when I went there was to try and improve its performance. Mm -hmm. And I remember speaking to the area manager for that particular prison, who was a man I admired greatly. And um, I... I was describing to him one of the ways in which I tried to improve the performance of the prison, which was in what was called purposeful activity. And this essentially monitors the amount of uh, time people have in workshops and education, etc. And uh, I'd improved it by having better data capture. So ensuring that everyone who went was properly recorded and the full amount of time was properly recorded. And I Mm. remember telling him about this and... uh, he just said to me, well, Jamie, that's all very well and good, but has that actually changed anyone's life? And it, it just, it was at, at a, he said that at a time when I was already questioning mm. what I was doing and what I was becoming. And, um, and, and that sort of helped me to see how I was becoming too managerialist, really, and helped me to reconnect mm. with some of those different values 
more progressive values that had led me to join the prison service in the first point. And this was also reflected in my academic interest. So um, when I was working as a managerist, I did an MBA, I did a master's in business administration. Right. So I was basically also schooling myself to be uh, a, a kind of business manager. And, um, uh, and But after that, as I come to reconnect with my with the values that were important, I uh, uh, then started to uh, started to do a PhD, which I did with uh, you know Richard Sparks, who's mm. um, at Edinburgh, Edinburgh University. Yeah. So uh, so Richard very much helped me to reconnect with the 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 kind of small p politics of what I was doing and the social implications, mm. and to see it in a much broader lens. So it it sort of helped me on my professional journey as well as personally to think again about who I was and what I was becoming Mm. how did you at that moment then when you're reflecting on how to do management that was making life better for people how did you then how did you actually do that in a system that was becoming ever more sort of structured around KPIs and all of this I should say key performance indicators um try and avoid the jargon yeah (laughs) <laughs> so I suppose there's uh, there, managerialism really has two sides to it. One is the structure of it, so these audits, targets, etc., mm. um, and the the sort of hierarchical structure that reinforces it. Um, but on the other side, it also tries to capture something of the subjectivity of people. So it encourages you to or someone working in that environment encourages them to self-regulate for for them for that individual to focus on things like targets audits and compliance mm. so it's not just about what other people do to you it's about what you do to yourself mm. and so just reflecting on that was was one way in which I could kind of liberate myself to think well I don't have to be like that you know yes I have to understand that there's a structure in which I work and I need to understand the organisation in which I work will be measured in certain ways and part of my job is to understand and respond to that but I don't need to conduct myself in a way where I place that at highest priority Uh, I can operate in a way that tries to connect with people and culture uh, and think more broadly um, and also I could start to practice in different ways. So I didn't have to narrow my focus down to compliance. I could think, you know, how do I engage people in this broader cultural issue in prisons? Mm. Um, so there was there were just ways in which I, I could kind of liberate myself, not by necessarily destroying the organisation, but just trying to think differently and operate differently myself and mm. reassert that agency. Thanks. And And did you find that you needed to sort of move roles to do that or or could you implement that exactly where you were at that point i'm just wondering which whether you moved to a different prison at that point that that had more um room to be creative and things like that so i think that was an evolution but Mm. i'd say that becoming a governing governor of a prison definitely gave me more leeway to uh, develop that um that gave me more autonomy and uh scope to to develop a more individual approach can i just ask Uh, you about that particular point in your career so um so for people that maybe aren't familiar there's there are several governors within a prison in in a like a management structure and there's always a number one governor 
that then oversees everything. And so when you made that move from deputy to number one, was that, was yes. that, did you find that a big change? Was, you know, is it, is it lonely at the top? Was it difficult? I'm just wondering what, as a personal experience, what was that like for you? Yeah, so you realise, so there's a number of realisations that you make. I mean, one is that, that you can have an influence, significant, quite a significant influence, and you, you realise that, that there is some positional power that comes with that, hmm. uh, which has to be wielded very carefully i think with 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 sort of power comes responsibility yeah. um so it it did make me realize those things i mean in terms of uh you know is it lonely at the top um i suppose there've been times difficult times when i felt like that but i think i have a good network of colleagues and a wider network outside of prisons mm. which helps me retain some sense of perspective uh, but yes, there are certainly times when you realise the decision, the ultimate decision, rests with with you as governor, mm. uh, and and that that can sometimes rest very heavy. And I can certainly remember quite early on, just some what were fairly, almost fairly straightforward decisions. You know, for example, about granting people uh, release on um, home detention mm. curfew or making decisions about uh, colleagues' future continued employment. Uh, and some of those um, did rest quite heavy with me, just yeah. the responsibility that one has for people's lives, you know, deciding whether or not to release someone, mm. deciding whether or not to continue someone's employment. Um, these are significant and life-changing decisions. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they 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 can be very uncomfortable, and they should be uncomfortable. Anyone that finds those easy isn't doing it justice. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more of that. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that must take a toll as well. The with that level of sort of weight on your shoulders. Yeah, um, I, I, I guess. I mean, that's you know part of the yeah. the job. But if you're not open to the emotional dimension of it. Mm. Uh, and you just internalise that, then it would be very damaging. But I think if you're open to the the fact that this is a difficult, these are difficult, painful decisions that have human consequences, mm. um, I think the alternative is that you engage with a process of denial. Yeah. And you know, who want you know who who wants who wants people working in that kind of role who are just denying the difficulty and the harm and the yeah. problems that there are with it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions on, on what the reality is like there. And so I know that you write about prisons and the media and sort of the media's response to covering what happens in prisons. And so I wondered, is there, is there anything that people often get wrong that you feel like you have to ex explain? Yeah, so the, the, the media isn't there to provide a sort of... Um, uh, a technical dissection of the prison machinery but mm. what I think it does do is talk to the values uh, the social values that shape imprisonment mm. uh, so I'd say that the predominant media representation is one that uh, legitimizes punitiveness so often presents people in prison as uh, as having committed much more serious offences than is the average. Mm. Um, it presents them in sort of, as, as often as a kind of feral, uncontrolled population. It doesn't 
doesn't necessarily give you an insight into their history and backgrounds that have shaped them. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, there's a sort of othering process that takes place. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's significant both in shaping public attitudes and public policy. Um, but that is something that I constantly encounter. So most people haven't had a direct connection with prisons. They haven't been to prisons. They don't. They haven't worked in prisons. They don't know people who've been in prisons, um, and so they rely more heavily upon the media to inform them about who's in prison, what happens in prison, and what it's there for. Mm-hmm. So it becomes quite significant in shaping their views. And if it is largely presenting this view that prisons are legitimate, they're full of very violent and dangerous people um, who who are different from you or I, then that 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 sort of has a has a really significant impact upon how people see mm. that institution. So that's something which I'm constantly um, trying to respond to mm. uh, and try to encourage people to think about who is in prison, why people are there, and what we're asking this institution to do, and whether there are alternatives to this. Mm. So that that's a dialogue that I'm constantly involved in. Um, and of course, you know, the prisons are one of those institutions that everyone's got an opinion about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so they should as a vitally important uh, public institution. Uh, and I think as someone who works as a public servant in prisons, I feel that it's part of my responsibility to uh to engage with people where they have where they want to discuss prison issues so um and surprisingly enough once people find out i work in prisons i often have discussions about that and they will want to tell me about what prisons should be like and how they should operate and (laughs) yeah yeah i hear you (laughs) i feel like uh many of our colleagues listening to this will will, uh, that will resonate with them as well i think Mm. um yeah, I don't know if you find if you go to uh, I don't know a party or something and people find out that's that's what we end up talking about and I you know when they want to hear about the realities and I tell them some of it, it ends up just being quite depressing and you think oh, I wish I had <laughs> sometimes I wish I had a job where people were like oh happy after <laughs> me talking to them yeah. actually you know yeah sometimes well, a bit more well, depressed. I'm... Yeah, well I'm a teetotal vegan that doesn't talk about anything except prison, so I never get invited <laughs> to parties. Oh well, we can we can start our own parties. I think. <laughs> um, okay, so actually, this leads me on to ask you about doing things slightly differently. And you know, when we talk about prisons in the media or whatever mainstream prisons, people have a specific idea about what they are. But you've worked in some very specific prison regimes, and so I wonder if there's any particular that you'd like people to hear a bit more about. I mean, I personally love to hear a bit more about. Grendon and the therapeutic communities and what's like working in and managing a, th- a place that, that runs as a therapeutic community but um yeah I'd love to hear about that and any other ones that that you think would be worth having a quick chat about sure so so Grendon is very different from other prisons so it's the only prison that operates entirely as a series of therapeutic communities so it holds um about it holds 230 men who have all committed very serious violent or sexually violent offences uh, but there are also people who generally have a uh, a history of 
having been the victims of childhood abuse and trauma, and this is one of the experiences that have then shaped them mm. uh, in later life. And what happens in the therapeutic community is that Grendon's broken into um, a series of what, what, what are called communities rather than wings with about 40 residents. They're called residents rather than prisoners. Mm. And there's a, a much more professionally diverse staff group that work there. So as well as um, specialist prison officers, there are psychotherapists, psychologists, probation officers, uh, creative therapists, and a range of uh, group facilitators mm. and these all have specialist training in therapeutic communities and psychotherapy and they also receive ongoing uh, clinical professional supervision mm-hmm. and what happens on each community is that on a Monday and a Friday morning the whole community all 40 residents and the staff that are on duty meet uh, in order to discuss issues of shared interest. And this meeting is chaired by one of the residents, a prisoner who's elected into that position for a period of time. Mm-hmm. So they will they will discuss, you know, if there's conflict in the community, they have to discuss how to resolve it. If there's a new policy or process that needs to be introduced, they'll discuss and agree that. Um, they'll uh, make decisions through a process of voting. So they'll decide who does which jobs, if anyone breaks the rules, they discuss and agree what the sanction should be, what the punishment should be. Mm. Um, and so the idea here is that you're creating a kind of living learning environment where people take responsibility for themselves and others. Then on a Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday morning, that community will break down into small groups of around eight residents plus uh, at least one, usually two trained members of staff. And those small groups over a long period of time will work together to explore their own backgrounds, their histories, their offences, how that links to their thinking and behaviour today. Mm. And during people's time at Grendon, they would also uh, undertake, uh, most people would undertake art, art, art therapy or psychodrama, which are just different techniques for trying to access the same material about their background the history, their offences, how it links to thinking and behaviour today. Mm. Um, in in the afternoon, everyone would do either have a job or go to education and do learning. Um, and each community will also promote community activities. So, for example, uh, they will host family days where where the residents will invite their loved ones onto the community to share a meal, to see where their loved ones live to meet the people their loved ones live and work with, to find out about the therapeutic process. Um, They would hold social days where they would invite in professional visitors to help them to understand the therapeutic process and also develop their own individual skills in working with professionals. And everyone on the community has a voluntary role, so they will do something unpaid on behalf of the community, which can be anything from being the chair to being the... Um, person who looks after the fish tank or waters the plants Mm -hmm. but everyone does an unpaid job on behalf of the community so the idea of a therapeutic community is it's not any one of those elements which is the therapy it's all of it working together which is the therapeutic intervention and there's a a lot of research takes place at at Grendon and has taken place over the years Mm -hmm. in order to understand whether it works or not and what we know from that research is that there is a significant improvement in people's institutional behaviour. So 
um, violence significantly reduces, uh, self-harm reduces, drug misuse reduces, uh, people report a higher quality of life, um, but also what we know from uh, from a very extensive research study which looked at people seven years after they were released from uh, the prison is that those who stay for 18 months or more, there is a significant reduction in reoffending. So this yeah. is an intervention which has a whole range of potential benefits and it's one which is based on the idea that uh, of recognising people as humans who have often not only caused harm but have often be also been the victim of harm mm. uh, and trying to make sense of all of that helps people um, both to improve their own lives and to reduce the harm that they uh, that they may present to other people so it's a, a very different approach but one that has uh, has demonstrated significant success over the years yeah i just i just find it fascinating as well i mean it's it kind of encompasses so many different aspects of sort of progressive reform in terms of you know having smaller communities rather than huge huge prisons with thousands of people focusing on serious offenders rather than petty offenses and short-term prisoners uh, giving people responsibility rather than taking all options away from them and uh, having sort of autonomy over their own uh, choices uh, and then you know really trying to work hard at that rehabilitation and trying to get people to to change and be pro-social when they leave prison rather than maybe even harming them further and so I mean it's it seems such a positive way of of working with this kind of community and so what do you think about the scope of it to be expanded across the prison estate one would presume it costs a lot more money to run a prison in this way than if you were going to do it for 230 people in current mainstream prisons but the results seem to be so much more beneficial. And so what, what's your position on the reality of something like this being expanded further within the prison estate? Yeah, so well, there, there are... Um, so Grendon is the only prison that operates entirely as a series of therapeutic communities. There are other prisons that have either small therapeutic communities within them. So Gartry, for example, mm. uh, Dovegate has a large therapeutic community, but within a larger prison, Warren Hill. Um, there are also some prisons that have uh, substance misuse therapeutic communities, which are a different model, but it's still a sort of therapeutic approach. So there are discrete units uh, around the country which offer that approach. Um, I mean, obviously, this is a an intervention which is as you say, targeted people who've committed the most serious offences mm. and have a high level of, of, of need. So that isn't everyone in the prison population. In fact, it's a relatively small part of the prison population. So this isn't something which will be relevant to everyone. Mm. Um, but having, some, having that service available for those who need it is important. But there is something about just the general approaches that are taken... Uh, things like giving people choice and autonomy, uh, encouraging responsibility, building a sense of community, mm. uh, which in themselves are are valuable, um, even if they don't, you know, e even if they didn't have an impact on people's reoffending. There's something about humanising the environment, which mm. is of value in itself. Yeah. And there are different approaches that promote that. So there's a lot of talk in prisons at the moment about 
trying to nurture more rehabilitative cultures. And the, the work around that is very much draws upon the practice of uh, therapeutic communities and other environments. And also the Royal College of Psychiatrists, which accredit the therapy, accredit therapeutic communities such as Grendon, have also developed a different form of accreditation called Enabling Environments, okay. which takes some of the core elements of therapeutic communities and uh, and uh, puts that in a way that any environment could develop these, whether it's a health environment, an educational environment, a, a prison environment. Mm. Uh, and so at Spring Hill, for example, one of the methods that we use to try and develop the culture and environment at Spring Hill was to seek accreditation as an enabling environment and to use that process and the standards, the enabling environment standards, as a vehicle for, for changing the culture. Mm. And um, so Spring Hill was the first men's prison to get accreditation as a whole, for the prison as a whole, as an enabling environment. Mm. So I, I think that there is some scope, if not, if not for building more therapeutic communities, then at least for taking some of the practices uh, and trying to uh, develop them mm. in custodial settings. I think there's certainly a value in that. Mm. What do you think the reason is why this hasn't already happened to an extent um, in terms of there's, there's so much good evidence for the benefits of it? Um, thinking about at the top end of politics and the, the policymakers that make these kind of decisions, you know, there's a lot of money being put into the the huge prisons with thousands of, of prisoners at the moment, which will be very different to what we've just been talking about. So what do you think it is that's, that could push the balance in, in the other way to the way it's been going recently? Yes, well, I mean, and to some degree, there's uh, some social and economic choices that are made about what we're asking the prison system to do uh, uh, just in terms of designing those kind of new larger prisons so as Berwyn prison which opened uh, about four years ago um, as mm. that was being developed you know we did work with the um, the the management team there they they sort of sought us out at Grendon to use some of the therapeutic practices to inform some of their work so mm. they were very much about the idea about making big feel small and how you kind of try to nurture a sense of community right. within uh, within the settings they had. And some of their physical design was that although these were large units, they were separated into much smaller ones. And those smaller ones tried to operate, create a sort of sense of community within them. So there, were, there, there are ways in which you can try and do that. Mm. Um, I suppose that places like Grendon ask a, a different question, which is, uh, what 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 is, what is the purpose of prisons? Mm. So, um, you know, Grendon very much focuses on people who have committed the most serious offences, who I think most people would agree needed to uh, a period of detention and separation from the community. Um, there is something about the approach that it takes, which is less pun punitive and more both respects people's rights whilst detained and attempts to offer the opportunities for personal change. Um, and I think it also invites questions about, well, why does it take till that stage for someone to get that sort of intervention? Mm. What other interventions yeah. might be offered 
along the line, whether that's through health or education or social services that might offer some early life intervention um, to prevent these things earlier on. Mm. So I think something like Grendon invites questions not only about prison practice, but it actually invites some questions about the very idea of prisons and what, what, as a society, we're asking prisons to do. Mm. Yeah, so interesting. Okay, thanks for that. And so you've kindly recorded a clip for us of of one of your papers that's just specifically about prison management and you actually phrase it being against prison management. So before we hear this clip, is there anything you'd like to say uh, for the listener to understand in terms of context? This uh, article, or it was, it was originally delivered as a lecture, the Perry Lectures, which mm-hmm. is an annual, annual lectures. Um, and... It's, uh, it's called Against Prison Management, and uh, this was based upon uh, a series of research studies that I'd carried out over about a 12-year period looking at prison management, including the book The Working Lives of Prison Managers. Um, but I'd also carried out research of, of prison managers trying to respond to the challenges of austerity. Mm. Um, there was a, an initi- initiative set up under Michael Gove called Reform Prisons, which attempt to operate with less central prescription uh, and so I carried out some research there and uh, also draws upon some research um, of my own practice at Grendon as well so so this article in some ways tries to draw upon all of the those and consolidate them in one place and a reflection upon uh, a dozen years of both prison prison practice and research It is unusual, perhaps even shocking, that as a prison manager I'm declaring myself to be against prison management. Over the course of this article I hope it will become clear that I'm not against the people who work in prisons, including prison governors, and I'm not seeking to call out senior officials. I'm not against HM Prison and Probation Service or a prison abolitionist. I'm not against forms of organisation or the ordering of activities. I'm not seeking chaos. What I am against is a form of management that has come to dominate prisons and has had harmful consequences. This form of management which I am against is one that, one, overuses targets, audits and other measures, so leaving little space for individuality, creativity and autonomy. Two, overemphasises compliance with measures for their own sake without meaningful connection with the social context, and three, nurtures compliant behaviour and uniformity amongst prison managers with the aim of producing identical corporate citizens. Prisons are not alone in seeing these practices involve. They've been seen across the public sector and across different countries. My work on prison management shows that these approaches are deeply embedded in practice, culture and individual identity. They are enduring and are resistant to attempts at reform. Okay, thank you for that. It's a really interesting excerpt then from... I've I've read the whole paper and, yeah, there's so many different aspects of it that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, you talk about things such as sort of the difference between 
the virtual prison and the actual prison and sort of the one that we create in the strategies and then the ones that people live in real life. And so, yeah, I wanted to ask you about how you feel that tension between the idealised version of, of prisons and then taking that from the paper into the reality. Yes, yeah, so the the term virtual prisons was coined by Anne Owers when she was the hmm. chief inspector of prisons. And what what she was describing really was the way in which audits and targets can create a world which exists on paper but is very different from the lived experience of people. Mm. And she was sort of saying that there is there can be a disconnect. And I describe this as the meaninglessness of um, of managerialism. Mm. So they, it's, managerialism does and targets attempt to reduce complex social phenomena into simplistic measures, yeah. um, which are often opportunistic. They don't capture the whole experience. Uh, and so um, there's really a question about why, you know, what are these actually doing? Mm. Uh, I think there are other ways of trying to assess and understand prisons which are more meaningful. Um, so I'm not against all forms of measurement. I think that the ones that are meaningful are, for example, prison inspections, which draw upon a human rights basis mm. and involve uh, a, a mix of um, direct uh, direct conversations conversations with staff, prisoners, focus groups, um, observations, documentary research, and all of that understood with a degree of professional judgment. Mm. So I think that they offer something far more meaningful. Yeah. Uh, and I also think that measures such as the measuring the quality of life developed by Alison Liebling at the University of Cambridge, which uh, is based upon surveys and focus groups with uh, with people in prison, with prisoners, um, again, is trying to capture something much more meaningful is, and is more empirically based. Mm. So I think that there are meaningful ways of measuring prisons, yeah. but there are also fairly meaningless uh, ways of measuring prisons, which are some of the targets and audits. And um, that is, in, in essence, also what I think Anne always was trying to capture by this idea of virtual prisons. Yeah, and... You mentioned specifically about these targets and this again this tension between people trying to achieve them for the target's sake rather than looking at genuine change or the quality of people's life and you talk about kind of gaming the system uh, yes. and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that so gaming the system is a is a kind of chronic feature of managerialism mm. where um, so for example uh, people would um, you you would see examples of um, people for example uh, altering the dates on letters so that the correspondence targets would be met mm. there were examples of um, you know the achievement of uh, a particular you know or, or, or things like um, attendance at workshops or education being recorded on standardized forms which didn't actually reflect the time that people were there. Um, so you, you, you would find there would be lots of ways in which um, the importance of achieving the target uh, was so overpowering that people would make sure it was done, yeah. even if that wasn't the reality of what was happening. And th these weren't 
this isn't bad people that are doing this. This is a, a system which kind of manufactures that. Um, this, there's a sort of pressure on people to create this appearance of compliance and achievement. Mm. And um, so this became a kind of chronic feature of the system. And it was almost that compliance was more important than kind of normative things like uh, integrity or honesty. But that, you know, like I said, these, it wasn't bad people doing this. It mm. wasn't bad apples. This was, there were so many examples of this that um, it, it, it's a feature of the system. And mm. it's not just a feature in prisons. There are lots of people who write about the health sector or the education sector who describe exactly the same thing. Mm. So this is a, a well-recognised feature of, uh, of managerialism. I think something that I found resonated with me as well when you talked about Andrew Rutherford's work within within your paper and how he d- d- described three different dominant uh, sort of viewpoints within the system and have yeah. people working very punitively. Um, that was one of the headings. So a, a strongly held dislike of prisoners and a desire to see them punished. Then there's a second group or framework of thinking in terms of liberal humanitarian and that's empathy for offenders and victims and desire to respect their rights and offer opportunities of rehabilitation. And then this third one, which is obviously the focus of, of what we've been discussing, this expedient managerialism concerned with disposing of the task at hand uh, as efficiently as possible. And I'm, I'm using your words to describe that. This isn't me talking. Um, but I, yeah, that really, I can recognise all three of those groups when I think about my time working in the prisons. And um, yeah. do you think... do you, do you think that these three groups will always always exist to a certain extent and it's just sort of cyclical in terms of who dominates the agenda or like how do you see this playing out so t- to a degree those uh, values constantly exist in tension uh, and they as a, as I sort of said earlier on prisons i think are a a, a, a battle of ideas and values they're a contested moral environment so mm. I think what Andrew Rutherford identifies as three of the broad, um, broad values. Uh, I, I, to to some degree, they're cyclical. But what I would say is that what Andrew Rutherford identified, and he he was writing in the uh, early nineties, mm. was that um, managerialism was becoming increasingly important, mm. and the work that you know I have done and others such as. Um, Alison Liebling and Ben Crew um, has, has all has sort of shown that that has continued to grow and become the dominant set of values amongst amongst prison managers. Mm. Um, so that that managerialism has really become center center stage. And um, you know, one of my concerns about that is that uh, it it perhaps creates a kind of moral blindness. So. Um, mm. If people are just focusing on the the mechanics and the um, and the sort of costs and the targets, there's perhaps less engagement with the lived experience, the uh, the the real life impact of the work, work work and the kind of moral implications of it. Mm. So um, there's there is a concern for me about how the predominance of economic rationality, as Alison Liebling has described it, mm-hmm. does push out that kind of more profound moral concern 
with the how people with with prisons. Um, so so yes, that's uh, that. It's a kind of pattern which has kind of grown over the last, at least over the last thirty years, mm. possibly more, is that managerialism has come to dominate and. Um, uh, and although there's some res- there's there's always some tensions um, that has become the most important. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it. It was put in place in order to try and create a, a structure where performance has improved. But in your paper, you you highlight how actually it's it's increased rates of inequality within within that space, and also you've talked about the creation of increased toxic work environments as well so i wondered if you wanted to mention any more about those aspects yeah so there there are a number of concerns that i have about um the development of managerialism one is there's just just this assumption that it it works and it creates better organizations and more successful organizations Mm. and i think there are lots of examples where that hasn't been the case whether that's um you know you can point to for example the health sector where the um, the inquiry into the failure of the Mid Staffordshire NHS Foundation Trust, uh, and that was the inquiry was conducted by Robert Francis, and, and Francis identified how the um, the focus on targets really obscured the lived experience of people, which was very poor, mm. and um, gave this sort of sense of um, gave this sort of sense of, false sense of security. Mm. Um, and you can see similar things in prison. So, for example, when uh, HMP Liverpool was identified as a significantly failing prison in, uh, I think it was in 2017, um, you know, that hadn't been picked up in all of these, despite this huge apparatus of monitoring and surveillance, uh, that just hadn't been picked up. So this isn't necessarily a successful way of maintaining standards mm. um, and in fact the the, the governor Pearsono came into Liverpool afterwards you know it was very much about developing culture and um, you know focusing on the lived experience so it almost take, took the exact opposite approach to achieve success yeah the the second bit is about uh, obscuring and entrenching inequality and this this was very much about the experience of managers themselves so I kind of spoke to both women and black, Asian and minority ethnic managers. Mm. And and all of those people described to me how... Um, so often people would say the introduction of targets, audits and other measures has created a level playing field. So all managers now are just judged upon their outcomes and these are inherently equal. Hmm. Uh, and actually, what um, what women and black Asian minority ethnic managers would say to me is that what that obscures is the fact that they often face quite significant resistance within groups and within the places they work, hmm. that they're less likely to have the kind of informal sponsorship of more senior people uh, and um, and this and all of this kind of makes it more difficult for them then to meet those targets. So yeah. they're saying that actually what this does is gives a veneer of equality, 
but actually obscures the, the more deep-rooted cultural resistance uh, and bias that they, that they face. Mm. So, um, so that was one thing that, the, that, those, that those people themselves were saying that they experienced. And the kind of toxic work culture is really a number of elements to that. So first of all, it's this idea that um, people just can't be trusted. You know, people need surveillance and monitoring in order to do their job. Mm. Without that, they they won't. And so I think there is something inherently about a low trust culture, which is created through managerialism. And then this was sort of also sort of backed up by um, what people described as a sort of punitive mechanism. So people would say things like, uh, you know, if we don't deliver the result, right results, I'll get a kick in. You yeah. know, I'll get I'll get hammered if I don't meet them. Yeah. And 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 actually, although that didn't happen, you know, that that wasn't the reality. That was how people felt about it, and mm. that was how people. You know, that was almost a sort of pressure people put on themselves. Mm. And then the third aspect was the, how people would almost put their, the, achieve, the attainment of targets above their own personal well-being. So, for example, people would talk about, um, you know, sort of say to someone, well, how would you feel about not meeting a, a target? And then, mm. you know, so, well, you just don't do that. You yeah. just, you know... That, you know, I can't fail things, you know, I guard yeah. them with my life and they'd say these kind of things. And, you know, one person I sort of asked them, you know, how does it, you know, you know, what if you weren't able to meet these targets? And, and, and they, they, the colour kind of drained from their face and yeah. they, they just sort of said, you know, it, it just makes me feel ill thinking about it. Mm. So there was, there is something about how this managerialism creates within people, within their own subjectivity, mm. um, it, it, quite an impressive feeling uh, and people sort of drive themselves beyond what's reasonable really. So mm. it, it does create this sort of toxicity, which uh, again is a, a concern of mine. Mm. And so thinking about what you might advocate in instead of that then, I mean, it sounds like, you know, just as you were talking about Grendon, about how the residents there are given more freedom and able to sort of flourish because they aren't crushed beneath a system that's telling them what to do all the time. You know, obviously it's very different talking about staff, but in, in the same sort of theoretical framework in your mind, when you're thinking about things, are you suggesting that we, you know, we should have less oversight or rules in place so that people in those jobs were able to express themselves and do their jobs without, being forced into a corner and feel sick because they don't meet a specific target yeah so i suggest a different sort of oversight i mean we the democratic accountability Mm. is important um so i i'm certainly not suggesting a kind of wild west where people just have their individual fiefdoms Mm. but i'm suggesting a different sort of uh oversight as i said earlier on i think there are meaningful ways of uh, assessing prisons mm-hmm. such as the uh, the independent inspector and uh, the and measuring the quality of prison life um, so I think they they are important um, I think it's also useful to use some measures internally to um, to make judgments about prisons and some actually are essential so for example you know one of the one thing which 
prisons ought to be measured about is that they is that there are no deaths you know that would be that seems to me quite a meaningful important an important measure to yeah. have yeah. um you know the level of violence does seem to me like an important measure to have mm-hmm. but perhaps others are less so um but I, there's something about how these are created as well so you know, at the moment, they're very much kind of centrally designed, top-down uh, measures, whereas one of the approaches that I'm proposing is a more localised approach. And this did happen in um, the reform prisons, which were set up under Michael Gove. So for a period of time, they were told, look, you 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 will no longer have these targets, audits, etc. You'll still have inspection, mm-hmm. you'll still have measuring quality of prison life, but, but actually the rest of it is down to you. And so in the, um, there was a Tease and Weir reform group, and I did some research there, and actually what they did is they did a series of consultations with the people who lived and worked in the prisons, so there's the staff and the prisoners, mm-hmm. but also with the local community, to sort of say, well, what what do you what what do you want these prisons to be? What do you think uh, is is good in terms of you know what, how a prison should operate? What do you want to see it doing? Yeah. And they then developed their um, their strategy and priorities and some measures to give some indication of progress along the line mm. um, through that process. Now that seems to me a far more healthy way of doing it. Mm. Uh, by uh, engaging the people who are directly involved, giving them a proper involvement in it, and creating a set of measures which are meaningful to those per- those people. Mm. So that's the kind of approach which uh, I was advocating, and I would certainly try to do take an approach which mirrored that in my own practice uh, when I'd governed prisons. You know that was that was part of how I would try to put together the. Um, you know things like what our what our priorities were uh, and the main work that we'd be doing. Yeah. So I think there is something really meaningful about that engagement. Um, but there's but you can't just sort of create the structure. You've also got to try to nurture the culture and individuals to be able to work in that environment. You know, prison managers um, have been cultivated over 20 or 30 years to take a managerial approach yeah so that isn't undone overnight so there is something about how we use um hr processes so Mm. recruitment selection promotion training development in order to nurture a different approach um and you know similarly that can be taken not just with managers but also you know the approach the with with staff groups more generally to sort mm. of think about what it is we're asking them to do, uh, and indeed the people in prison. What sort of induction do we do? What sort of what are we saying their role in managing and sustaining the culture is? Uh, how do we involve them in that? So I think there are, you know, for me it's not just about reimagining the structures. There's also something about how you engage with a process of culture change mm. and bringing to life people's agency yeah and just to briefly play devil's advocate for a moment do you think when the the idea of creating or the benefit of having a uniformed approach to management and creating managers in a certain image that i think you call them identical corporate citizens in your paper 
Um, is the benefit in theory that, you know, governors are moved around a lot and people change jobs. And so it makes sense to have somebody who can be picked up and, and work straight away in another place. And so, so I think that that, so a couple of things I'd say to that. Well, one is that I think that that works on a number of assumptions. That works on an assumption that all prisons are identical, which mm-hmm. they're not. Yeah. They're not physically. They're not physically identical. They're not identical in terms of the people who they, their cultures, their history, their biography. Mm. So you know, if you've got identical corporate managers, you can they can take an identical corporate approach in everywhere they work, but. Um, they won't be sensitive, not necessarily be sensitive to the local environment or be able to navigate that or engage with it. So there is something about having to be more locally connected, mm. which you know, many prison managers do very successfully, very effectively. Yeah. Um, but that, that's got to be part of it, is not just thinking of, of, from a centralised perspective, but thinking local. The other thing I'd say is I think that you have identified there one of the major drivers for the de- early development of managerialism. So the when managerialism was, was more strongly developed in prisons in the um, early two, late 1990s, early 2000s, by, for example, people like Phil Wheatley, who mm. was a director general of prisons. Now, Phil Wheatley understood the culture um, and history and biography of prisons and... I believe that for someone like Phil Wheatley, what he was trying to use was use those tools in order to tackle some of the real abuses that there were in prisons and also to try and improve the standards. So he wasn't using those measures just for their own sake. He was using them in order to shift a culture he deeply understood Mm. um, and use it as a lever. And I think that is where it can be effective um, where it's used in that way that's much more sensitive. The the thing is that when it becomes normalised and more generalised and perpetuated, it just detaches from its social connection. Mm. Um, but when it was uh, when it was developed in that early phase, um, it, it was doing something really meaningful. Okay, so I wanted to then ask more about you and how you feel about your career in terms of the long-term impact and just how you invest your energies because obviously you're also the editor of Prison Service Journal. Like, how do you decide and how, how do you have the energy to do to juggle all of these things together? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I suppose that people have hobbies, don't they? Some people go fishing or play golf or something and yeah. I... Uh, you know, edit a journal and yeah. write articles. No one's no one reads. So, um, I guess everyone's well, I got think their... some people read. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got my interests, and uh, yeah, and, and you know, this is this is stuff now. This is stuff now. I'm passionate about, mm-hmm. isn't it? So, um, you know, I want I want to kind of be. I want to get my hands dirty in street level politics and this for me that's what prisons are street level politics Mm. you know this is where this isn't sort of standing on a stage and 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 talking grand ideas it's actually trying to shape cultures and individuals lives Mm. uh, in in the reflection of some values and 
you know, and it's a deeply compromised world, as I've said. You know, I, you know, I'm deeply troubled by what prisons are asked to do in society and their implications. Mm. But they're not going away anytime soon, and um, so my uncomfortable choice, and I do feel uncomfortable about it, has been to get my hands dirty and get involved in it. Mm. And do you feel, in terms of impact, you know, with one foot in each camp, I'm just wondering how you manage the very different sort of worlds that that you're involved in. Yeah, so, so I, I suppose that uh, I, I probably am trying to speak to a number of different audiences or engage with a number of different people mm. there. Um, you know, part of it is uh, trying to engage with uh, an academic audience um, about the about different people in prison and the different and different aspects of imprisonment. Part of it is to engage with with colleagues and influence things like um, training, development, human resource practices, uh, and some of it is also about part of it is also about me working through my own my own professional life. I mean, mm. this you know, in some ways, it's a sort of personal journey as well. So it, it, it's all of those things. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, I ask everybody about impact to just try it because it, it can mean so many different things to different people. And this, you know, working on something like prison management is such a huge behemoth of of a you know theory and practice to to try and make any changes to that. Um, trying to carve out some small changes here and there, it's it's hard to to think about what impact means. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in in trying to understand how each each person frames that for themselves so so i mean I, I you know i guess the way i always think about it is not you know i i'm i don't see i don't see radical social transformation uh on the horizon um and so i i sort of think well the only way that i can really try to bring my own values to life is by participating mm. in social institutions in order to try and shape them. So um, that's what I try to do. Uh, and, you know, in some ways it would be, I, I would find it much more comfortable to sit on the outside and, uh, and you know, criticise. But I, I've made a choice, yeah. which is to get involved. And, you know, it's something that I that constantly troubles me but mm. you know I, I sort of think it should trouble me i'm yeah. depriving people of liberty is my living i mean I, yeah I, you know an, an institution which uh, you know although some although for some people some good can ultimately come from it i think for many people it's also harmful so yeah, if i'm you know being honest about that and not being blind to those things mm. does mean it's uncomfortable yeah. but then it should be it should be uncomfortable yeah yeah, definitely. Okay, well, and and just lastly, uh, it's another way to think about impact and who you're getting through to. But just if um, hypothetically, if we had a room that we could curate and put fifty or so people in there for half an hour, and you could choose who was there, and what would you be saying to those people, and who would you be putting in that room? So, I mean, that's a good question. So, I I think that there would probably be a range of different people that I would have in that room. Mm. I mean, for me, there would be there's something really important about uh, creating spaces where the people directly affected by imprisonment, and by that I mean 
people who are imprisoned, their families, also people who have been the victims of serious offences, mm. um, along with those who work in set policy for those institutions. So having all of those people um, together, to me, seems to be the space in which you can struggle to create some kind of dialogue and understanding. Um, and that's incredibly difficult to, to do that. Yeah. But, but that, would be, that would be the ideal for me, is that you would have 50 people in there who would be from a range of different backgrounds and experiences um, uh, in, in order to try and forge some sort of shared understanding mm. or, or at least some broad understanding of what the main issues were um, in order to set an agenda for the future. Brilliant. That sounds great to me. Again, I've obviously found this really interesting and I'd love to ask you lots of other questions, but I will stop there. But if other people want to get in touch or to follow your writing, your work, where would you think we should send them? So I can be contacted through the, the uh, Prison Service Journal has, uh, a, is available free. Um, it's free to publish, free to access. It's um, on the pages of the Centre for Crime and Justice Studies. Uh, and my contact details are on there. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Jamie Bennett. So you, um, you can contact me through there. And if anyone is interested in anything I'm writing, then the next thing I've got coming out is a book called Prisoners on Prison Films, which is mm -hmm. um, some research screening contemporary British prison films to an audience of people serving sentences in a British prison. And that should be coming out, published by Palgrave Macmillan at the end of the year. Great. Thank you. Well, thanks very much. Thank you so much. I no, really appreciate uh, getting a chance to, to chat to you about these things. And yeah, I wish you all the best with, with the work as you keep going. Yeah, thanks a lot. OK, thanks for listening. Really hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or on Twitter, wherever you feel happy to do that. It always just helps other people find the podcasts and I really appreciate it too. Thanks again. See you next time. Cheers.